Hey, it's David McCall with the QTS Experience Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Jennifer Wild of the Innovation Ecosystem. Jennifer is an expert in this area. She spent decades in the humanitarian crisis area, everything from earthquakes in Haiti to human tragedy in the Syrian desert and around the globe. And Jennifer brought systems innovation to those experiences and how we make real systemic change when people are at their most vulnerable. Now Jenny is in the private industry sector and doing the exact same thing. She's got really compelling reasons why we need to change how we've done everything. Failing small is no longer an option. So how do we fail big and actually not fail at all? Join us for the conversation. I think you're going to love it on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Jennifer Wild, thank you for joining me on the QTS Experience. So good to be here, Dave. Yeah, I I could tell you're a pro because it's early, early, early in the morning in New Zealand, and you're still acting like, yeah, this is awesome. So I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I do have a two-year-old daughter who gets up oh. around 6 a.m., so oh. I've got her ready. She's out the door. We're good. Thank you very much for coming on the show. We, um, You and I met in, in, um, in a very interesting way. Somebody suggested you and... Um, Dan McClure, you're both at um, Innovation Ecosystem. And I was really intrigued because we were having the conversation or the idea was innovation of systems. And in particular, there was, a, there was an idea put forth that caught my imagination because it's one that I've lived by um, for some period of time, whether it's as a leader of people or a manager of systems, or being part of innovation. <clears throat> and that is fail small. This idea of mm. distill the arguments down to its simplest form, work from there. And if you're gonna fail while you're innovating or you're adapting, or even in the military, like how do we how do, we do this? And um, Dan, in one of the conversations that I heard before he came on the show was like, and that's absolutely wrong. Work fantastic up to now, but it is going forward we're, we're going to have to, at least, if not everything, um, most things, like it's, it's this level of complexity. And so I was intrigued, invited him on the show, and it was an interesting, long two-hour conversation. <laughs> One, he's a pretty cool dude. So many times in our conversation, I felt like, nailing it, I got it, sure, it's this. And I get two thirds around my regurgitation ad nauseum. He was a good sport. He never rolled his eyes one time. And he's like, yep, you got it. You got it. No, no, you don't got it. It's like docking my boat. I don't know if you've ever got <laughs> a boat and docking your boat. As you're coming up to the dock, you're like, we got it. We got it. Nope, nope, we don't got it. Someone throw the rope. Yeah, I might have crashed into the dock a time or two. So hopefully, I'm not gonna try to get you to be Dan because only Dan can be Dan. Um, but I one of the things I'm interested about us having a similar but different conversation is what does it look like in practice? And in particular, while I think your conversation with me is going to be really, really cool is when we look at your resume and your credentials, it's pretty much in the, you know, incident after incident after incident uh, or experience in great opportunity of a great human tragedy and things going on in the humanitarian um, 
you know, in humanitarian aid around the world. So that's kind of the the preface or the premise for the conversation. So I'm hoping you can help clarify some things for me as we go along in my audience. But why don't we start in the beginning, which was when I when I look at at least the experience that you've shared, it's pretty remarkable who signs up not once, not twice, but a number of times to rush to Africa, to rush to Southeast Asia, to rush to other parts of the world where there's either systemic tragedy or an event's happen, a tsunami, an earthquake, um, you know, whatever. So some long-term drought and poverty and exploitation, others are just humanitarian crises. What's your background that led your heart and your mind to get involved in that? That is a really good question, and I don't know. <laughs> no. I, you know, it, it's really interesting. I was always really interested in politics um, growing up, and I kind of thought, how do you change the world? Well, you change the world through politics. Mm. Uh, and then I got involved in uh, New South Wales politics in Australia, where I'm from, and I worked for a couple of ministers. And I was like, I don't know if this is where I should be. I'm not sure if this is the right kind of place for a young, possibly idealistic uh, girl. And so I said, okay, you know, let me try to work. Let, let's look at kind of the United Nations and a couple of other places um, where you can create significant change for people. And I had this, I kind of did some volunteering and went to Uganda in East Africa and came back and had one of these, um, significant moments where I interviewed with World Vision uh, for one of their intern graduate positions and I had the head of their advocacy department, I had the head of their emergency department and the head of their long-term development department and interviewed with all of them which I felt incredibly lucky to do uh, and uh, and I got a call from HR saying uh, the emergency department's interested in you. Mm. And I said, oh, I've never really thought about it. I always thought about making this like, you know, advocacy and making long-term deep changes and, you know, significant right. changes to people around the world. And, uh, and, the, and I said, why? <laughs> are, you, are you sure you're not the right person? Right. <laughs> and uh, the, that's a stupid thing to say when you're being offered a job, but um, very kindly, the, uh, the human resources guy said, well, why don't you talk to the, the head of emergencies and, and, and see why, you know, he's offering you this job. Uh, and, and he then took me through kind of, you're flexible, you're adaptive. There's a bit of a kind of dive in the deep end and, um, and see how things work. You're a good team player, you're hardworking. I mean, he didn't actually know these things because he had met me very briefly. But he said, there's all these reasons why we think you would be great, even if you don't know it yet. Mm -hmm. um, and three months later, six months later, I was um, in Pakistan after the Swat Valley conflict um, with the Taliban. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, that's a long story. Ended up getting evacuated out of there after death threats from the Taliban. But... Um, but just thought this interesting, difficult, in many ways, heart-wrenching challenges where I can make a big difference. Um, and so, yeah, I signed up for the next 10, 15 plus years to, um, to, to do that work. It, it reminds me of two situations. One is people that go through 
an emergency response. So firefighters in America that are fighting um, these raging forest fires that can that can come across, and they, or or even people in the military. And the number one reason why people, at least in the United States military, re-enlist is once no, but none of them want to go to combat. Psychopaths want to. We find them as fast as we can and remove them. <laughs> Get them out. Jobs, right? But regular people, ninety nine percent of the people in the military or any first responder are just regular old people. But what they find is when I join a team and I fall in love with my team and we're at risk and we're helping to solve problems, I don't want to leave them if they're in the middle of whatever that crisis is. That's why they don't reenlist for the money or the career opportunities or because they suddenly like to hurt other human beings. They just, they just want to protect these this man or this woman to their left and to their right of them and help the people around them is kind of the, my my experience. Or that's one way, or it's kind of like people get tattoos. I have no, (laughs) but I know so many people that said, you know, I'm going to, for whatever their reason is birth of somebody, the loss of somebody, some significant thing. I've never really been a tattoo person. I'm going to get this like little clover leaf or cross or this little phrase or something on my wrist. You see them five years later, they're sleeved with tattoos. You're like, what happened? They said, brother, once you get the first one, you just can't, you know, addictive. (laughs) You just can't. You can't stop. So I'm wondering when you're being evacuated out, you probably of Pakistan, you've probably made some, you know, certainly look, here are our goals. This is our mission. Some of that was accomplished. Some of it not. Um, Most everybody that I talked to other than maybe the tattoo people, I actually probably include the tattoo people have some heartbreaking stories about, you know, I had a goal for this, right. Or, um, and we won some of these, but you know, I don't, I don't remember as much what we won as what, we tried to help, or we weren't there in time, or we didn't have enough resources, or we couldn't persuade the mind of the people on the ground, whatever it was, this thing is the thing that keeps me awake and breaks my heart. And the next time I go in, we're, we're going to do it better. Did you have that experience coming out of that? Yeah, um, certainly. And I have no tattoos. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that guy. Don't start the first one. It's <laughs> um, but, you know, I think in some ways that how I fell into innovation, which is you, there is a deep sense of meaning in these kind of jobs. And, um, and as I said, incredibly complex challenges. Uh, and every time, whether it's day to day or week to week or, you know, emergency to emergency, you want to be able to do a better job because you are, working with and seeing and supporting people in the most vulnerable time of their lives Mm -hmm. you know it's it's a time when uh you know in the haiti earthquake just to give you an example a lot of our staff were living in camps because they'd lost their houses may have lost um family members may have lost you know obviously livelihoods and jobs and um, and probably most importantly, just lost their dreams. Like when you get a huge emergency, um, you kind of, you imagine now you're kind of tracking and you're saying, okay, maybe I want to get a house and I want to send my kids to school and maybe I want to get married or, um, you know, here's the kind of what I want to do in the next five to 10 years of my life. And after a big emergency, those things get torn up immediately mm-hmm. and you find yourself in a you know possibly with no house possibly um you know 
with with really significant loss and just uh, yeah, it's, it's obviously um and it's huge so so in going in and supporting people in in that time it's always about how can you do it better and um you know in my in my time then kind of working and digging into how do we do this better I kind of came across innovation and and certainly tried in many different ways the kind of incremental innovation um that are that exists in some of the most common innovation methodologies and just said this isn't really enough you know this isn't enough for the kind of people and the kind of problems we have and and that's where I ended up um, working with systems innovation because you can create really big change um, that is worthy of the kind of time and effort um, of people in those crises. And I think, interestingly, as I kind of shifted across to for-profit, is worthy of the time and effort of companies, you know? And, um, and since working in uh, industries that are being disrupted, since working in um in small since working for and supporting small medium and large companies to look at you know how do they keep up with the pace of change how do they come up with new products how do they really excel at what they do um often not always if you're going to make big change you need some of these bigger tools like systems innovation so um part of my love is for complex challenges and big changes uh, and part of that came out of and still lives in uh, meaning from big crises. You know, you're, you're a very good storyteller as you were talking and catching yourself without going into too much detail. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it made my heart quick and I, it reminded me of, um, there's a, there's a spiritual verse, whatever anybody's faith is, but in my, in my faith tradition, there's this phrase that says, um, a man or a person is the idea without hope will perish. And when somebody explained that to me, what they meant was what they believed the original idea in the original language was human being, Vietnam War crim, um, uh, prisoners. Um, if a human being and and also most animals, if they believe, if they're if they have a certainty, a hope, even if it's misguided, that I am going to transcend this present situation I find myself in, even if it's on the horizon, it may take my grandchildren, if I can just get to the States, if I can just get out of this thing, even if I'm working 15, 18 hour days and barely surviving, and then make it a little bit better for my kids, and then a little bit better, like if I can hold on to that, we can endure pretty much anything. But if it's taken, any person of any demographic anywhere on earth, if you lose that, and in the West in particular, we have a tradition, especially in the last 150 years of setting our hope on things that really are pretty transient and we shouldn't set our hope on. But if you lose whatever that hope is for you, yourself, that I have the opportunity to a fair trial, I have an opportunity of sanity, you know, my, my children, or whatever it is, if when human beings lose that, or animals for that matter, that's when they die. That's really, if not physically, they emotionally, you know, spiritually or whatever, they just die. So you're telling me these stories that I'm imagining Haiti in particular, but any of these anywhere, if I lose hope, true hope, 
then it you pretty much disconnect from being a human being. Was that your your experience at all in the situations you found yourself in? When you yeah, I, I absolutely agree that I think hope is so incredibly powerful, <clears throat> and I think um, religion can play a really important role in that. Whatever religion it might be, again, um, I think I think in 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 big disasters you find some of the best and the worst of humanity and hopefully more of the best, to be honest. Um, And, and hope, hope comes from, you know, it's like when you lose, when you lose that ability to, to dream in the way you had before, when you lose that, um, that life that you imagined, I think some, you know, anyone who's been through a crisis in their life will know it's the more common things you start to hope for, the more grounding things. So let me give you an example. Um, I was in Iraq. Um, I was uh, working with uh, Syrian refugees in Iraq and I was out in one of the camps and as, um, as what I was doing there, I was kind of just talking to people. What do you need? What do you hope for? What does your life look like now? Thinking about how we kind of design programs differently, how we support people to get what they actually want um, instead of, you know, it's in, 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 the, in some ways, uh, organisations are delivering services. They're saying, okay, here's food, here's water, here's shelter, here's healthcare, um, here's products, as you would call, um, so you can essentially stay alive you know, following a crisis. Um, But really what they're doing is they are supporting the dreams and opportunities of people in the future, right? Like that's, we're we're supporting well-being and and, and the future life of people, Um, which is, is, side note, interesting in that, you know, companies can say, well, I'm just delivering this specific product, but great companies say, well, how am I supporting people? To actually do what they want to do emotionally, physically, mentally, etc. Um, so when you start to say, okay, what do people want? How do people see their lives? What kind of innovation can we create to not just provide water, but but provide that in a way, or or, or provide support in a way that's really going to get them to where they want to go? And um, for better or or worse, often worse, you know refugees and and internally displaced people people who get displaced within their own countries are often in camps for 10 20 30 years mm-hmm. and this these people are smart you know they some of them have phones they know this they've done some research they've talked to people so i stopped um and i i went into this woman's house who invited me in and she sat down and you know we had tea and i said okay tell me about your life tell me about tell me about what's going on and she had two kids who were just about to finish high school uh, and she had a husband who um, basically uh, stayed as long as he could and then got out to try and save their home but that wasn't possible Um, their immediate family had not they were all still alive but obviously they had suffered um, significant losses throughout their family and she said I'm here, I'm in this desert camp in Iraq. I'm not in a um, town. I can't kind of get access to services. I can't get a job. Um, I was a teacher. 
back in Syria, we had a swimming pool. My husband was a tailor. My kids were going to high school. You know, we were kind of middle class. She spoke English. She spoke French. <laughs> she spoke um, Arabic. And she said, um, you know, my husband is now severely depressed and basically doesn't leave this, uh, this shelter we have. Um, I, I've spoken to people. I see that there is a future where, you know, for the next, 20 years me and my husband and my kids are stuck in this desert camp which by the way is kind of you know up to I don't know what it'd be in Fahrenheit you know 140 50 degrees Celsius down right down to negatives at night just a generally not a not the kind of place you want to live um and and we don't have a house anymore we don't have any savings there's no opportunities to get jobs and she looked at me and she said I see that my life is basically over. I have no hope for myself or my husband anymore. And, I, and I'm sitting there, you know, just as, as you do saying, don't cry because this is not yours. This is not your loss, you know, and this, you know, it's, it's so unfair for me to, to be able to do that. Mm. And she said, but what I hope for is I just want my kids to get out. I just, and the only way I see them getting out is being educated. So, so she said to me, how do I get my kids to finish high school? And they've got to go to college. They've got to get some kind of something after high school where they can either get into one of the main cities in Iraq or they can get out of Iraq off their own bat because they're smart kids um, and they would have gone to university um, back where we lived. And that, that tells you kind of a few things that tells you from your original question, she, she doesn't have any hope for herself, whether, you know, whether or not that's true, whether or not they can, they can somehow, um, they're somehow able to change their lives or not. Or her husband who, who is sitting in this, you know, room, 10 meters by 10 meters and essentially just not leaving day and night and which can cause all kinds of other issues. Um, but I think as many of us, especially if we have kids, she's like, how do I support my kids? They have a whole life to live. You know, they're, I can't, you know, 16 or 17 or 18. How my, I'm now living to do that. And I think you just, you, in some ways you scale back what you hope for, but your hope is so much greater and it's pinned to these very big things. Um, and then the challenge from my perspective is, I mean, I, anyway, I couldn't disagree with her to her life, but I couldn't necessarily disagree with her. You know, if I was in the same position, mm -hmm. um, would I be thinking the same thing? Probably, you know, um, probably I would just- then. Uh, no, I didn't. Hmm. <laughs> and it would, be, it would be, it's so much worse once you have kids, certainly. Oh, but, yeah. but, but, um, and, and so how do I then, focusing on innovation in the humanitarian sector at that time, um, I started an a initiative which had uh, labs that, uh, innovation labs that looked countrywide, across a number of country and then uh, countries and then some innovation labs in, uh, in globally. 
and and so I went back and said okay so what what do we do with this because this isn't just this woman we have data that suggests you know this education is incredibly important and while things may not shift in other ways for the next five years how do we support these kids to, to be able to exit at some point you know um and and it's so interesting then when you start to look at um at okay we could just say well we just get them into school you know we just we and and there were schools forming and and teachers like herself creating schools um in the refugee camp which is great to just get kids back to some normalcy and, and learning um but i mean not aligned with any curriculum not kind of not towards a kind of future greater outcome so you could say okay we're going to do some post-it notes and we're going to put those on a board and we're going to say how do we get every single kid in that refugee camp or across iraq uh into a school and that will be an incremental shift up and that will happen maybe mm-hmm. um or you can say what do these kids really need to succeed because they could they could go to school and they could get stuck in this refugee camp for 20 years and perhaps not use their schooling um to the extent they could or not be able to get out of the refugee camp what are the trends that exist and so how do we map this system of education how do we map the different kind of actors from universities technologies activities that the kids undertake resource flows government curriculum you know within iraq linked to syria linked to kind of global education trends and say there is this huge trend of online education and you know 10 years ago it was slated to be the next big thing <laughs> 20 years ago maybe even right um and and how do we access that trend which hasn't yet um moved forward and say you know can these can these um kids access some kind of free online stanford education mit education some kind of you know yeah an australian university it doesn't need to be the best of the best but but how do we get these kids into a place where they're able to learn and excel and have opportunities for the future and um and side note i mean interestingly online education is is one of the big shifts in the last year with covid you know one of these shifts that um uh wasn't moving forward as as kind of planned but i think there was a the economist just came out with some data the other day that said online education remote education is looking at quadrupling the market is looking at quadrupling over the next couple of years so so these big shifts these these significant trends can completely change lives in you know in Iraq with these kids who are well educated up to this point um over to you know kids in wherever it might be in the states in you know Brooklyn or or something like that who don't have the 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 resources or you know access to some of um some of this education so yeah these significant trends were you know i've just given you something that really affected me mm-hmm. can affect people globally whatever country they're in 
which is what is really exciting to me. And being able to map those systems and look at those actors and, and find out how does that actually support this person um, is incredibly powerful and much more powerful, I think, than saying, let's, you know, let's kind of make this really simple and bring this down to the 80-20 and, and just test a couple of things of, of getting kids into a classroom. How big, how big are these, um, are these places that we're talking about? Cause it sounds like they're massive. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends on where you are in the world, but you know, they could be hundred thousand people, 500,000 people. These, these, some of these camps end up becoming cities, um, cities in inverted commas, as you imagine. Um, but There are millions of Syrians who have left Syria, you know, half the population. Mm. So, so, so they have to go somewhere. And, um, and while, you know, there might be kind of smaller camps or there might be refugees who do move to the cities and kind of inflate city populations, um, often there will be these very large camps uh, where people come and need to be um, supported. Yeah. Are they allowed to come and go as they want, or does that depend upon the country? Yeah, that depends upon the country. So um, some in some places, certainly you can come and go. Um, that might be difficult depending on your resources, sure. <laughs> the ability to kind of leave. Um, they That is kind of gold star. You should be allowed to come and go. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some places, for example, in Sri Lanka, after the Sri Lankan conflict, um, the government put fences around uh, some of the refugee camps because they didn't want combatants uh, coming out or, or terrorists uh, coming out of, of those camps. Um, but that's incredibly negative to most people who aren't combatants and who aren't terrorists and are basically just trying to work out what their life looks like now. Dan said the same thing when he's talking about opportunities for where systems innovation really might be able to make the biggest difference. Because, in it, you know, I'm in the data center tech world. We build 100 million square foot, 200 million, or not 100 million, two to three million square foot facilities with hundreds of megawatts of power. And the idea for us, I sometimes, you know, he's a very patient person because I, to me, I felt like, well, fail small means I'm not speculating. You're trying to get me to speculate and you know, whatever. And I, I don't think that's what he meant at all. Uh, <laughs> talked about it, but um, it's this, there's so many of us um, of a certain age that have kind of, you know, we've spent our whole life in this incremental change space in this, um, fail small idea. And it's worked. It's been spectacularly successful in many, many ways for us. But you, when you start talking about online education and the humanitarian effort in particular, in fact, I never, he mentioned both of those and I didn't connect them until you just connected them. So thank goodness, Dan is a very gracious person um, and didn't smack me on air on my own show. But it was one of the cool things about online education in particular is that the pandemic, if you could say anything's cool about the pandemic, is it ripped out of the control of a bunch of institutions. And I'm not picking on any particular institution, but here, at least in America, and I think in many other places, it ripped control of 
incremental change or these fun, look, we have these boundaries set up um, and we'll just give people the benefit of the doubt for the very best reasons and purposes out there. We want to educate people, children or adults or whatever. We want to do it in this way, but it also put as bureaucracy does limits. And I think that one of the things that online, I'm certain, not I think, I'm certain that one of the things that online education has done is it has shattered a lot of the control mechanisms. Now, it's yet to see if that's, you know, the totality of that good or bad. But um, to your point earlier, I can get online and watch chemistry classes from MIT, which, by the way, they've been doing for well over a decade, just publishing them for free. Stanford, so many of these really interesting higher level, I didn't even know this was true, but publishing this stuff. But even in our local districts, they're reimagining well, what kind of students would go to this school? Um, can we, instead of congregating or creating a school or a curriculum that is sort of this generic curriculum for everybody, what if somebody is very artistic minded, they're very left brain minded, or they're very right brain minded? Should I be forcing my next chemist into following this path as the violinist, equally valued, equally needed for our world. And I know I'm oversimplifying, but how do we make this accessible, not just for people without means, but also for people that might think differently, but not have access to fill in the blank. But if I'm connecting to um, a great, uh, um, I don't know, theater group or whatever, a great school that may be a town or a state or a country over that would embrace me, I, I see this, um, this area of innovation that can help refugees and refugee camps also impacting people. I also see people scrambling to try to put it back into a box. I just don't think they can put back in. So I've, I've, I'm just reacting to your conversation, but um, what, what's been your experience? It doesn't have to, I don't want to limit it just to education, but when, you, when you're introducing this kind of change, people get uncomfortable. It, the ground's moving underneath us. Well, I think uh, I think it's exactly what you said. The ground's moving moving underneath everyone, whether they realize it or not. So I think COVID has been a very obvious global uh, moment for people to say, "Wow, things are shifting, and they're shifting fast." Mm -hmm. You know, whether you look at Zoom moving from 100 million users to 300 million users in a month. <laughs> yeah. Or whether you um, look at some of the stats that come out of McKinsey, which is, you know, in the first year of COVID, there was a 16,000% increase in um, telemedicine. Mm. So some of these shifts have been happening and then pushed forward by COVID. And I think... I don't think, <laughs> I know, um, we all know the pace of change in the world is moving faster than ever before, whether we see it or not. This decade has been um, slated to be one of the greatest social change decades of our lives because AI and energy tech and IoT and robotics and, um, you know, possibly quantum computing, who knows where that is. These technologies are getting to their maturity point. And it's not, why, it's not just moving from the steam engine 
or it's not just moving to digital, but there are a number of blockchain, there are a number of incredible technologies getting to maturity point at the same time that, that we will see radical shifts in what we're able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of interesting, it's an interesting time for COVID. I don't think it's ever a good time, right. but it's an interesting time um, because that is just pushing some of these uh, technologies further, which were already kind of ripe to be used. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, yeah, you know, this is not, it's not something you can put back in a box. Mm-hmm. It's not something you can suddenly say, okay, t- telemedicine, people don't use that anymore. You know, we've, we've been through that and that's not useful. Well, there's a number of people who, for whatever reason, don't want to go or can't access um, medicine or just find it easier having a chat to a doctor on the phone or um, have started wearing the kind of heart rate monitors or the insulin monitors or or what have you. And um, we often see, um, I'm going to use, I'm going to talk about companies here. We often see companies say, well, you know, we're losing market share slowly, but that's increasing. It's like the melting ice cube, you know, or, um, or we are, you know, maybe we're a mid-sized company and we're seeing kind of Apple or Amazon or, um, or one of these larger companies shift into our space, or we're seeing these um, small kind of uh, piranhas, as I would say, you know, if, if the big guys are the elephants, the small, small innovative guys are piranhas chewing off our market share. And so five years into that, we thought, okay, it's just a kind of, of a percentage point a year and now it's one percentage point a year and then it's you know and and what do we do how do we interact with this doesn't it's like well the ground's been shifting for five or ten years but you're seeing it now and you're feeling it now and sometimes it's too late (laughs) and sometimes it's not um and you know if you start to see that kind of thing and you start acting and you start creating a kind of organization that can make big change um, and doesn't just do the kind of incremental uh, improvements and incremental innovation, then absolutely you can move from being, you know, a a small or or mid-sized organization to a big organization that can disrupt others and that can take large amounts of market share off others. Um, Another example of that is, I think in the last quarter in the US, they hadn't there what is this in the last quarter in the US the number of acquisitions um, had not been seen in the last decade there were more acquisitions than there had been in the last quarter than in the last decade Um, what does that mean it means bigger bigger companies are getting bigger Mm -hmm. and then you're getting these startups that are able to take off market share and so if you're not making big changes right now as a company in the US or anywhere else, by the way, right. then, then you will be a shrinking ice cube. Then you can get eaten by the piranhas and the elephants. <laughs> I guess my question is, how do you recognize that? For example, I know that if I'm, uh, you know, I walk out the door on some uh, bright February door in Antarctica and I see flowers blooming, there's probably a problem, right? You you went through a number of emergency responses 
that really caught your imagination and you probably a, a number of them, whether it was education or whatever it was, how do I help these human beings overcome whatever their circumstances? Now, maybe some of them were as simple as let's get the, the private equity donors and the government involved and let's get concrete poured here and we're going to put this hill back up and we're going to dig this rubble out. And that's a, but the things that you've described where we end up at a place where there's camps and there's camps that are going to be there, even if the government's for you, but we're not really sure what to do for a significant period of time where a, where a, a parent or a grandparent is saying, I've lost hope for my own hopes and dreams. I've shifted them into these children or these grandchildren or this community or whatever. I'm, I'm moving that. And so through your experience in that world, at some point, experientially, you said, okay, I can't, I'm not going back to organizations and asking them to help me teach French, you know, in three different languages for the people in this camp. I'm trying to get them access to it you know, in this way, through online, through whatever, you know, it's a, a complete paradigm shift. And two, if I learned one thing from Dan, it was this. It's not just that you're, if he said, you know, um, complexity versus complex, he must have said it 50 times. I'm still wrestling. <laughs> what, I, what I kind of finally have landed on is you need a system that says when when the unexpected happens, you're adjusting. In other words, it's not just where, you know, I've got some complex system that's running off a set of algorithms or whatever. It's kind of like, like a human being or an example I heard was like birds. Nobody's in charge, right? People, people are adjusting on the fly as no, people came across the ice shelf or were crossing prairies or whatever. Yeah, we might have lost a few humans to the tar pits or to the marauders or the animals or whatever, but they began quickly just in themselves adjusting and learning. And we see viruses do this and other things just kind of, they adapt, they overcome. How in this new emerging world, if as you're looking at, business, not just your experience in the humanitarian crisis. How do businesses recognize um, that, look, we need to, we need to change systems, we need to, we need to reinvent ourselves or our products or services, or get all the way out of this now, because here's something that shows up that says incremental, or fail small or whatever is not going to work. What I'm imagining in my mind's eye is two things. One, when Amazon shows up and whatever your industry is, the pharmacy industry famously a couple of years ago, when they said, hey, we're thinking about getting, the, or Apple or Amazon, I forget who, we're gonna get into the pharmacy industry. You know, stocks crashed around the world of, peop of people in that business because that's what they, do. and I'm not disparaging. I love my easy, you know, you're talking about telemedicine. We've had three or four doctor's appointments in the last three weeks in my house. I'm pretty sure all of them, except for one that we had to draw blood, was telemedicine. And I've, I don't have my watch on today, but my EKG, blood print, ox, whatever device that's on my wrist is connected to my chart. My doc can see, I mean, it, you know, all that stuff. So we're, we fully embrace that. Whether, but if Amazon shows up, it's kind of like, please don't get mad at me, Amazon. Did you ever see the old Star Wars movies? <laughs> yeah. You better not spend any time packing your house if the Death Star showed up in your gallery. <laughs> Celebrate your last few days in style in whatever way is benefits you. 
Um, I can tell you, I'm going to have a few paradigm shifts. I'm just throwing that out there right now. But it's <laughs> when the shadow overcasts the planet, it's too late. And so <laughs> you want some time before Darth Vader shows up or any of these other big circumstances show up, right? Um, somebody tells you, look, I, I think something's going on. That's our seventh iceberg to melt here in the last three weeks. What do you think's going on? I'm going to tell you to move to higher ground. There's probably not a lot you're going to do right now. So how do you how do you imagine capturing people's imaginations if they really don't even understand that they need to you know they have the ability um, to conceive that it has to be this kind of a systems innovation as opposed to an incremental innovation? Yeah, um, I love the the, the Death Star. Da, 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 yeah, da. <laughs> My friends at Amazon get annoyed with me. I don't mean that at all. I just mean that it's too late. You know, it's too late. They're here in your industry. Well, I think there's, I, I mean, if you look from a big picture, there's two kind of focuses. Uh, one is how do you get an organization to be, you could use the word agile or you know, agile transformation, digital transformation, but how do you get a, to an organization truly aligned towards being kind of iterative, adaptive, flexible, innovative? So I think that's one piece. Um, and then the, the second piece is how do you get an organisation or parts of that organisation to both do incremental innovation? Because, I mean, you, you know, you should be, you should, parts of you should always be getting slightly better and improving, but also commit to a strategy that does that plus some of this bigger stuff, some of this um, bigger uh, innovation. And, and if your organization's already committed to that, you've got to use the right methodology um, because I can, I can tell you from my own experience, but certainly from research and the experience of others, that if you're trying to work out how to provide, um, how, to, how to really reshape if Amazon's coming in or if there's these small, super flexible, fast moving startups coming in, to your space, I mean, if it, you know, if Amazon's a, if the Death Star's coming in, or if it's a piranha, right? They're both problems, right. you know. And 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 the the answer to both of them is how do you flex and adapt and make sure you've got something of value to provide there. Um, so we we'll, so just a quick example: we we're working with an organization where Amazon was coming into their space. <laughs> And they said, you know what, this fragments the, the industry we're in, um, but that just means that we can create unique, incredible service offerings for people that Amazon won't for serve or that can be utilized by Amazon. So we can actually still do really incredible work, but with Amazon in our space. And in some ways we can do that bigger and better and faster um, and more efficiently. So, so, you know, it's about looking at um, how to shift your org, hopefully, to your, your company to be, um, to be agile, to be adaptive. And then secondly, how do you look at doing big innovation with the right kind of methodologies? And I can talk about either of those um, pieces, but maybe let me say, you know, it, in many ways you can start, it starts with leadership. And leadership that's open to innovation will attract innovators and will attract and create the kind of companies 
um, that are able to do this. But certainly there are incredible people within companies who have just, you know, found some cover yeah. <laughs> and are digging away on some really interesting big projects. And then the challenge is, okay, how do you find cover? How do you find probably the person above you who can support you um, and tell you when, when you're going outside the lines and, and you're going to get your hand slapped? Um, and B, that person or within the organisation, how do you work out how to scale something um, big and incredible through an organisation that doesn't necessarily value that? Um, so, I mean, I can talk more about any of those things. Um, well, we're going to talk but, about bump, bump, but before you do that, I, I, you reminded me when you're talking about, um, we're picking on Amazon, so I'm going to give them a break here for a second, which is, that, <laughs> by the way, I have a really funny shirt over there on the wall. It's a picture of a Death Star, and it says the Empire um, Employment, Reemployment Opportunity Program or something like that. Created, uh, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, it reminds me of in the 60s here in the States, the one of the California universities helped fund a tomato harvester machine, robotic machine. And um, <clears throat> they got sued. They later got sued by uh, a, an organization that said that was an inappropriate use of funds. And it um, negatively impacted the workers of our state. Famously, it went to court. You can Google it. It's widely available. I've talked about it on my show before, but this was, it was really cool. So, so the manufacturers of this product brought to the marketplace um, a new way of doing business, completely new way, completely disrupted. And on the surface, it felt like, well, this is unfair to workers. It's, uh, you know, the, the only people that are benefiting are those that can, um, you know, the, the, the people that are in the harvesting business because they can do this cheaper and, you know, whatever. And what they actually discovered was a couple things. One, the harvester never worked until um, growers who partnered with them were able to gr grow a firmer tomato. So they mm. grow a firmer tomato in order for the machine who couldn't get it quite as delicately, delicate, at least at the time as a human being. I don't know about now, but they couldn't at the time. Um, but once they did, the machine could go faster than any human being and um, didn't get tired, you know, worked spectacularly well. The consequence of that, though, then looked something like this. One, prices of buying tomatoes at the store went way down. Two, a lot of those people that were working on the line, because now there's so many tomatoes, they already knew the character, work ethic, and skill of these people. They moved them higher. <clears throat> almost nobody lost their job like like mm. it was a it was a it was a small gain of positions because <clears throat> they were flooded with tomatoes mm. and um and they they were higher paying jobs and i'm sure this doesn't work out in every case but it was this really interesting case study and the third thing that he did was it created a whole new industry the industry mm. of the hand picked delicate original tomato that caused much more money that was a, a boutique market that is flourishing today, whether it's in organics and other places, this has happened time and time again. So who's the bad guy? The consumer who gets very inexpensive, not quite as tasty, but readily really is my, you know, if I'm chopping these things up for tacos, we love tacos here in America. Uh, we just had Taco Tuesday yesterday. So 
I don't know how they do it in New Zealand, but we love our tacos. As you can tell by my shape, I'm like a thick Lego. But anyway, <laughs> um, hence the telemedicine call. But, you know, we, so the, the consumer, uh, you know, we made inexpensive, healthy, maybe not quite as flavorable tomatoes available. The workers, like in this particular scenario, it worked out. Nobody's the bad guy. You've got all of these other things. But it was a completely different way of, and I'm not saying this is systemic in it or systems innovation, but anyway, so as you were describing this story, there is a, at least a remind uh, to, to my uh, mind, a similar situation. What I'm more curious about though, is before we go into the two areas that you said you could go into, how do people even recognize I need to call somebody. Is it when a shadow's cast over, you know, do I have to wait for this massive retailer to show up into my space? Um, do I, I mean, you know, history's full of, um, you know, before Amazon, we're picking on Amazon, it was Walmart. I mean, I remember in my um, town that we lived in before we moved here, there was a hardware store slash little restaurant that had been there for 120 years. When Walmart moved into town, within three years, it was out of business. Nobody needed a specialty rake. Nobody needed a specialty uh, horse feed. We lived in Texas when we moved here. So, you know, these specialties, I could get pretty much everything except for a few boutique items that were at the boutique ranch store from Walmart or that store. So this thing that had occupied that place was put out of business. So this is as old as time in human history. I'm sure there are ice uh, cube cutters that got put out of business when refrigeration came along. Still shaking their hand. So this happens. But how do you recognize, holy cow, this is happening in an exponential way. And we need to, what, define what we're really about and how do we do it? Either we're going to be in the boutique business or we're going to, we're going to get on board or we're going to open an Amazon store. How do organizations recognize this is an incremental change you need to do right now? this is um, a systems change? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess two things. A, the, the head of, um, of, actually, let me start again. So yeah, maybe two things. Um, Basically, if you want to grow and if you want to survive, then everybody, everybody should be innovating. Mm -hmm. Now, all market, I mean, yeah, Klaus Schwab famously said, basically, he's the head of the World Economic Forum, every single industry across our planet will shift in the next decade. It's not about an if, it's about a when. And this is part of the fourth industrial revolution and, and, and some of the technology I was talking about previously. And so, yeah, it's not about, to me, it's not about should I do this? It's about when do I do this? Mm. And do you want to wait till the Death Star comes or do you just start doing this now? Mm. You know, business is awash with examples of entrepreneurs who have succeeded and failed and businesses who have succeeded and failed because they just haven't kept up with what was happening. Mm -hmm. The difference now is that previously it was like, okay, if you, you know, in Ford's times, if you can create a factory, 
good enough. Right. And then it got more complex and it said, can it, if you can create an organization that has, it is cross-functional, good enough. And now if you can create an agile organization, good enough. If you can look at outcomes rather than output. So, so we, see, we see these jumps in complexity of how you run a business and a company over time. And the next jump is just to do things bigger. And, and that is essentially around systems innovation, that kind of new methodology. And this methodology has been really growing. Um, I mean, it, it was started being discussed in the 1970s. And then there was a launch of internet and phones and markets, uh, the app markets and, and, and web markets. You know, people made billions of dollars off quickly creating a website or quickly creating an app. And that's slowly getting saturated now. It's not entirely saturated. You can still make a lot of money off a new app. Um, but our, our society has become um, more intertwined between countries, between people, between states, you know, globalisation or otherwise. And so we live in a more complex society. And so there are discussions about climate change and international politics. And, and what happens in Saudi Arabia affects what happens in the US. Mm-hmm. So, so meta down to individual business owners, there is now pressure on companies to say, I don't just do incremental innovation. I do have to do big innovation. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. And you, you keep doing your incremental innovation until someone comes and, and takes your market share. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that, that, that's how it's always been. It, 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 but, but it's just that there are now these bigger, different tools to enable greater um, change and growth and disruption. And so, again, use whatever example you want, but you know, the New York taxi cab um, industry took a hundred years to, to be created. And then it took five years for Uber to take them down. Mm. And so those, those takedowns, those disruptions are happening faster than ever before. And so I'd say, as someone who's been in emergency response for a lot of my life, you got to prepare now. Right. Do it. I jump in, huh. and it's and it's just about learning the next step in organizational business and innovation. And the flip side to that is, if you're not scared about people coming into your market, you should be excited about growing. Mm. You know, it's it's so exciting to be able to say, I'm looking at serving my customers better with better outcomes so that they love you know what I'm able to do more I'm excited to move past the kind of you know advertising of banks where they show all your kids happy in the park and say we're really going to look at the financial security of our customers we're really going to support them so that they love us because we do such a good job for them or we're really just, you know, whatever drives you, we're going to make a bunch more money and create something incredible that the world can't ignore. Um, and we're not going to do that. We're going to do that by, I think the, the tomato example is a great example of somewhere where you could say, how does this technology fit into a system? How does this technology fit into the food system, the, the actual outcomes that people want? And if you started to connect that and say, well, you know, it will become more efficient. So our company can spend more time on what's the next innovation and growing. And so the prices of tomatoes will fall. I mean, they're, they're all kind of 
obvious, you could say now, mm. obvious outcomes. And so you could you could draw that system and say workers could be laid off, but what we could do is create that flywheel like Amazon and uh, Elon Musk companies and others do of right. just doing more and better innovation and building this further. So, you know, we have two markets for tomatoes and we have more nutritious tomatoes and we have, you know, we've created an ecosystem of uh, of growing and selling tomatoes. And, you know, so that means we now have, I don't know, growers and buyers and um, middlemen who love us and won't use anyone else and come to us with ideas that we can then input. Because, you know, and so 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 the the ability for systems to kind of say, here's what here's what the world looks like now. We have people picking tomatoes. You know, this means X. Here's what the world looks like in the future with this amazing tomato picker. <laughs> right. And it's not about the tomato picker, actually. It's about the kind of um, society and organization and markets and value you can create to customers from that technology. And we often find, um, you know, kind of lean startup. Uh, methodology which is really great for incremental change so i'm uh, you know mm-hmm. not tearing that down just saying it's, it's great for what it does um but that will lead you to focus on the piece of technology and say how do we make this piece of technology better or it will you know user-centered design will say for women that buy tomatoes between you know 25 and 45 because they care about their health Mm-hmm. What exactly do they want from their tomatoes? And let's provide that for their tomatoes. And you wouldn't have got this amazing kind of, you, you know, you, you, you couldn't have built this system. But if you say, actually, um, we're going to do some user-centered design. We're going to look at what people want. Mm-hmm. And we're going to look at the kind of technologies we have. And then we're going to look at all the actors. We're going to say there's we've got people who buy tomatoes. We've got um, the growers. We've got the, the people that own the farms. We've got maybe the big conglomerate farmers. We've got the middlemen who transport the tomatoes and everything else. I'm not a, I'm neither a farmer nor a tomato right. grower. <laughs> and then we've got all the activities in the middle and, 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 and how money is currently made. And what we're going to do is we're going to place this technology here um, and now I'm going to move to kind of IoT or robotics or a- autonomous cars or electric cars. Elon Musk famously does incredible systems innovation. Um, and, and I'm going to say, rather than saying, how do I improve this technology? How do I improve this entire system? And that's where you get big, incredible changes quickly. And maybe over time, you say, I'm going to improve this technology, I'm going to improve this technology, and then I'm going to slowly see how this system develops. That works too. That's kind of incremental change. But if you can see that whole system, and if you can see the kind of opportunities and values that can be pulled out from the beginning, then you are the company that's creating the future. Mm-hmm. And you are the company that's gaining those opportunities and that values and not leaving that out on the floor for everyone else to pick up for these kind of startups to say, oh, yes, I see that um, niche and I see how we can create that value. Or these brilliant people out at, you know, Amazon or, or Facebook saying, I've got all the data. And so this space is open wide created by this 
technology that you've been working on. And so we're going to hoover up that value and own it. Mm. Um, if you can see that system, then you can see all kinds of incredible leverage points, opportunities, and you can build toward a systems change rather than a technology change, which is just, you know, um, so much more powerful. Um, and, and so that's, that's how we work. And, and it's the same in social change as it is in companies. So um, recently do, we did a program. I can talk about NGOs much more easily because there's not NDAs. <laughs> um, recently we did a, a, a program with a, a very large organization that deals with refugees globally uh, where they were saying, you know, we have so much we can work on. We could work on uh, gender-based violence. We could work on water and sanitation. And what we really want to do is we want to focus on what's going to create the most leverage, of course, for, for the least uh, for the least resources. Um, and so when we started mapping out the systems of, okay, so, so what does water and sanitation look like, which is often one of these um, areas where there's domino effects. If you wash your hands, you don't get sick, your kids don't get sick, you become more productive, et cetera. Uh, so mapping out kind of housing and shelter solutions and, and, and we, we, we walked around their organizations looking at the different systems and, and then, you know, somebody uh, in the organization said, well, I do access, physical access to populations. Okay, so how does that fit into these broader systems that we've been looking at? And they're like, well, it's a cross-border system because of course, if you're in Yemen, Syria, South Sudan, Somalia, you know, choose your most difficult place. Um, you need to get access from places that don't always have governments, that don't always have uh, uh, functioning kind of systems that are sometimes run by warlords. And, and we don't have access, you just, you can't work with populations and, and, and you can't create any change. And so we started to kind of map um, access into these systems and we said, no one's innovating or, or there's very little kind of large scale innovation around humanitarian access. And so this, you know, few people team in this organization of, you know, tens of thousands, this could be incredible. This could create, create incredible opportunities uh, for people globally if we can innovate around this specific leverage point. And of course that, um, that exists in companies. Of course companies are trying to do this. Um, but, but what I sometimes see when I walk into boardrooms is those, you know, mapping out a system and be able to like push and pull and, and discuss where, where leverage and opportunity can be found can get drowned out by we're trying to find the 80-20, we're moving towards simplicity, we're, you know, moving towards looking through this keyhole of what really matters and after thousands of post-it notes we've come up with the three post-it notes that are going to make the most difference without saying and how does that relate to the rest of your business mm -hmm. or the rest of your market and so you get these incredible data teams who who have this you know swaths of data that they can inspect but they get pushed into looking through a keyhole and saying well actually we're you know we're not able to leverage the data and we're not able to to, to look at some incredible opportunities because we have to look at this post-it note. <laughs> so this is where I kind of come back to the, the methodology you use matters. 
because it takes you down a road of you know user-centered design incredibly powerful mm-hmm. um for for specifically what it does or, or lean startup incredibly powerful for what it does systems innovation if you want to make big changes um and you want to look at you know leverage points and opportunities and 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 the kind of ecosystem stuff that you know uber and and um and tesla do then that is that's the kind of methodology you want to be using as you were talking one of the notes that i wrote down was at scale that seems to be one of the things that as i as i think about this um one a, a bunch of examples come to mind of missed opportunities i don't want to i don't want to belabor them probably the most famous in my mind was um the executives at xerox <clears throat> back in the 70s when their innovators out in san francisco were explaining to them hey we've got this thing that somebody's calling a mouse and we've in, we've created this thing somebody's calling email and you know the executives back in new york are like make copiers colorful make them faster make them cheaper make them whatever and S- steve j and steve w said hmm we can go put together a little computer fruit company take some of these big ideas and um and and do something you know do something with this um and, and on and on and on. I'm sure people could think of a number of examples for themselves. But scale for me is, you know, how, how even with that in the backdrop, so if somebody like me is sitting in that boardroom and I'm saying to myself, yeah, okay, um, we need to, you know, some of the things we've talked about today, don't, if you're moving to the Midwest uh, of the United States, don't wait until somebody sounds a tornado alarm to build a storm cellar. Like you don't have to wait for a big retailer. History's full of big retailers coming and going. Don't wait for the lean, agile competitor to show up that that is incrementally faster or easier or cheaper or or whatever the magic combination is. Those histories full of those. So if you're smart enough to know that, you probably would still be, if you're somebody from the 20th century that has innovated and spent time um, managing organizations or, or building products and services, you're still the kind of a fail small, manage your co- whatever. How do you how do you persuade people once you capture their attention that they have to do it at scale? And how would they how would they recognize we're the type of industry that could um, you know we could try something, we could do something, or we could reinvent something? So, for example, <clears throat> I have a friend that is in. Uh, the boutique cloud business. They recognized 15 years ago, long before a lot of us did, the impact of of cloud computing to pretty much the whole world, e-commerce, like just in all these different ways. Or they 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 recognize a shadow of it. I don't know that anybody really got it until probably 10 or 11 years ago, but but 2007, 2008, and they began to focus on, look, what's the problem ultimately we're trying to solve for people? make it easy, talent comes and goes, these other things, you know, in my bird analogy, birds are trying to get back to where they were born so they can mate and have babies and then leave. And so they're constantly adjusting to environmental variables and all these other things are constantly moving and adapting. They don't necessarily try to iterate on the same plan. We got to do it differently this time. And we're driven to instinctually get back there. So what these guys did was they decided 
look, we're trying to create a customer experience for people that looks like this. They have this feeling about us. We have this level of expertise, whatever. We don't want to be married to any particular technology. We don't want to be married to any particular operating system because that makes it too narrow on the talent that we can get. So how do we ask ourselves regularly, what is it that our, not just our customer wants, because we know the big idea that they want, even if they don't know it themselves. And so they went into this thing called the boutique cloud business. They're not trying to compete with the big, with, with Oracle or Amazon or Google or Microsoft or IBM, any of the massive cloud providers. They're not even disrespectful to them. They could care less. In fact, most of their platforms are sort of multi-cloud platforms today. Some of our customers have some of their stuff here in Oracle or Google or Amazon or whatever. And this part that is high touch and all this other stuff, that's us. And it's constantly changing. Um, and so I, I, I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. But they're not very big. So scale for them is one size. Scale for an organization like like us or other industries, you know, how do you, how do you make a small aircraft carrier? How do you make a, you know, or small, do, would you go out to the refugee camp and say, we're going to try distance learning. We're going to start with two computers, a 4,800 baud modem. Like, how do you persuade people? No, 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 no. We need to be all in. And maybe I'm just getting hung up on the specific technology and not the philosophy, but I'm trying to, to figure out from you, how do you, capture people's imagination once once they're whether they're enthusiastic because they want to make a difference or they're afraid and they don't want to get crushed or some combination of things which is usually the human experience how do you persuade them you got to do this but you can't you you got to do it at scale and this is what scale looks like or am i asking the wrong question uh not sure <laughs> but i'll answer that <laughs> okay. um so so what I don't do is I don't spend time persuading people that they need to do big things. Mm. I spend time with people who know they need to do big things. Okay. I spend time with people who either are um, have seen have a fear, market share loss, or have an opportunity that they see is big, um, and. And I think maybe, a, a, so to take that question from a different way, what we often start with is investing in understanding um, and that this is your systems piece that I've been talking about. Okay, let's draw the system. That might take 20 minutes, that might take three months, depending on what exactly right. you're doing. Um, and let's invest in like, what, da what do you know? What does your organization know? What is... Uh, what does the data say about this? Um, and I think often, you know, perhaps if you were convincing someone who who wasn't already there, mm -hmm. um, maybe just investing in some of that understanding, spending some time looking at opportunities, at changes, at possibilities for the future, at like, at what does the broader system do? Because I guess on the other side, often companies can just get so focused on their products you know mm. of course they can that's what they do that's what they do best yeah um and and you know that but that navel gazing to to cast a kind of negative um on there can stop you from lifting your head up and saying and so what does 
what does the system look like in this challenge or what does the system look like of this this offering this product and then wow you know so some incredible insights can be created just off let's have a let's have let's just spend half day let's just spend an hour whatever that is how big your team or whoever you need to convince is and let's just think about this stuff um and we often talk about the need for execs and uh, product managers and um you know wherever you sit in the organization to move between the balcony and the dance floor to to make sure you've got that kind of bigger picture and and um and understand what's outside your your realm of work maybe what's outside your company or or outside that challenge and then go back down to the dance floor and okay we're going to get this work done we're going to have a boogie we're going to dance but then i have to come back up and say okay is that actually is that actually changing the system is that actually meeting the outcomes of my customers how what are the unintended consequences what are the kind of assumptions that we've made and and how they're tracking not on the specific thing you're working on but on the broader system and the kind of when we've taken organizations or teams through processes like this that can often shift people's opinion like that mm-hmm. um that can often shift leadership's opinion like that because they say leaders who have been you know maybe more internally focused or maybe they have a pet project or otherwise can say whoa i've been missing it mm-hmm. and leaders don't want to fail <laughs> they want to succeed and so then the question is what is scale for you mm-hmm. you know and um scale could be you know the schools in my town the education system in my town or it could be online education for the world for people who can't access an innovation sorry how can't access education and you know who who have this specific challenge mm-hmm. and so i think an organize an organization or a person gets to choose that scale and they just need to look at the market you know right. if they choose something too small then then that's their that's their, their issue their problem their challenge um yeah is that, is that am i answering no, your question no you're exactly right i'm i'm sitting here just um i'm as you're talking it it reminds me of a friend of mine um i i don't know who invented this term but it cracks me up every time i hear it he's a scrum master mm. and, and <laughs> agile methodology and i thought yeah that's an unfortunate name they were probably sober when scrum <laughs> master cuz that people sideways so many times if they weren't but um when when those ideas first really began getting codified I I mean I can I can imagine in my my mind people thought they were crazy this idea of of um agile and agility and whatever and now it's pretty much every organization is some version of that so my guess my question is as you're communicating this idea I mean p- people are well versed in the idea of innovation they're well versed and the idea of a system or systems I don't I'm not sure that it, um everybody's as in tune with the idea of complexity versus complex or 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 systems in the way that we've been talking about today what's the momentum like 
it, I'm sure there are a number of organizations that say, look, you know, we historically, we know this is what happens in our market share. This is what happens to business period, at least in the for-profit world. One of the things that Dan said that really um, I made a note of was, uh, you know, one of the areas that this really can help and Jenny has a lot of experience in it is, and I said this at the beginning of the program, in the humanitarian area, you know, we've been running around and responding there. It's not necessarily that um, human beings today are more or less empathetic than people a decade or two ago, or there's more or less money or whatever, but it is how, um, you know, Jenny in particular has been successful at recognizing we have to think differently. We have to change how we're tackling these problems. We have to, you're right, have systems innovation, not just faster shipping of products or more access to airlift or whatever. That's important where nobody's disrespecting that, but it's not just thicker cardboard cartons necessarily to get stuff in. It is maybe we distribute completely differently. Maybe the, you know, whatever. He, he, there are a number of things that we considered. What I'm curious about is are people embracing this as on a large scale um, or is it still early days on embracing the idea of systems innovation as opposed to innovation as we've understood it for the last 50 years? Anyone that I've worked with after the first, whatever, couple of days or, you know, once, once we get into this methodology, they say, why haven't I done this in the past? Why didn't I know this? Everyone. There's not been one one organization, company that said, I don't need this. <laughs> to my early days in high school, the very first time I danced in Southern California and got to hold hold a girl close, I was like, <laughs> Have I resisted this? I see all those knuckleheads over there standing against the wall. And yeah, I look like an idiot. By the way, did you ever see the movie Hitch with Will Smith? Oh, oh sure my god! Well, it's a, it's a movie from 15 or 20 years ago. I just share that in this moment, not to disrupt your thought, but it's him <laughs> and Kevin James and others. He was teaching Kevin James, this big heavy dude like me, how to dance. He said, this is you right here. This is you right here. This, this two foot. <laughs> when you were showing your dance moves, I was like, see, that's a confident person because I got to dance like Hitch showed me right here. This is me. But the same, you know, what, what, you know, probably in the same way, um, you're describing these folks when I got out on the dance floor that first time as terrified as I was knowing I was going to make a fool of myself. All of my friends stayed over there. I got to dance after 10 minutes of being close to this mystery other species. I <laughs> what they thought, why have I not done this sooner? Unfortunately, within about 15 or 20 minutes, because they didn't like, you know, uh, um, they were all out there on the dance floor with me ruining the event. But in any event, you're saying that as you meet with folks that you know have this um they call you for one reason which you describe mm. i'm really mm. excited about something or i'm really worried about something mm. they have a conversation with you and um and you walk them through um whether they're aware of it already or you help them become aware of it here is a way to think more fully mm. about how to innovate is that am i capturing mm. that correctly yeah, yeah, certainly. And, and, and often it's, I, not always, certainly, but sometimes, you know, we get a CEO on the phone who says, I'm really worried about 
um, you know, how I get my dev team to move faster or how our agile transformation is not going as it should. Or we've created an innovation lab that we've poured, you know, tens of millions of dollars into, but nothing scaling because it can't scale through our organization. Or (laughs) even if it's had some good ideas. Or, um, or, you know, I see this coming, you know, and, and here's what I'm thinking about it, but I want to kind of talk to you. And, and, uh, and a lot of what we do is say, okay, let's lift our head up. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's look, let's, let's invest in this understanding. Let's see the entire system and the, and the place for the organization and the product and the real change you can bring to customers. Um, let's create a future vision of like, Here's where, you know, and it's kind of a lot of, um, or some methodologies use this, here's where you are now, here's the future and how do you get there? But when you start looking at a systemic level where you say, you know, here's, here's the current way food gets distributed. Here's a future way people will access food. And here is a methodology that, that's actually going to get you through learning and iteration and aligned work through your organization to this to this future place and the future place might change as you know you might grow that vision bigger you might right. shift things um if you can get ceos or, or parts of organizations to commit to that evolving journey with the right kind of methodologies mm-hmm. and you can find the right kind of people um sometimes they can find it but they found in product sometimes they're nestled down anywhere in the organization who can bring part of a system together who can say you know what food let's look at that transport area let's look at the people who drive the trucks and what their motivations are let's look at the community you know attitudes and beliefs of the people who buy the food um, at the store and the different you know when you can like let's look at the government um, uh, policy around this and you say well actually maybe we're going to focus on um, government policy and drivers and um, and that's really going to shift the system and then suddenly you have some new form of uber you know <laughs> and you say we're not we're not going to do anything with the food um, but you know what if we can use these kind of underutilized resources and create an ecosystem um, we can we can scale this globally so that the, the, you know, 800 million people in the world that currently go to bed hungry can eat. Yeah, that's a, that's a shift. So change that, you know, I was in San Francisco for a while and it was like, <laughs> I don't want to do anything that doesn't impact a billion people's lives. And I was like, cool, you're going to need some super powerful methodologies. Right. <laughs> and also there's some really great stuff you could do for less than a billion right. people. But whatever, I like it, you know. <laughs> Um, then, 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 then look at systems. Then look at how you can shift um, an ecosystem of food, you know. And those guys who are doing that now, they're coming after every single, you know, food distributor, food manufacturer, food transport company globally. Mm-hmm. And that so, so, so I think um, having some of these basic ideas talking talking people through some of these basic ideas and how you do it how you know from a methodology perspective you 
invest in understanding your system, you create the future vision of your system, you find those leverage points, you find the opportunities, you make sure that there's a commitment to an evolving journey and you find the right kind of people who can, you know, you see these people who are crossing boundaries in the organisation, maybe they're rebels, maybe they're not, maybe they don't have any, um, maybe it's like the nice 50-year-old woman who's just brilliant at connecting different parts together mm. um, uh, but, but who, who want to create something bigger and, and want to kind of shape, um, shape interesting systems, um, then you, you create an engine inside that organisation that can scale like others can't. Um, and, and, and it's interesting because, it, yeah, so often, you know, it's like we, we need better lean structures or we have this innovation lab that's not working. And then you explain, you know, you go, you go through this process and people say, oh, my gosh, that makes so much sense. I'm an idiot. <laughs> so you're not an idiot. Well, you're it's working just, off is, of information that thing. you do, right? You, yeah. This is yeah. for the last hundred and something years since we be you know, since railroads and steam and the telegraph, this is how we have thought and innovated. And it has, in most cases, changed the world for the better. I, I think what Dan and what you're saying, but Dan for sure emphasized this point, he is not, he is not anti any of those things that have been, he's, he's like, let's celebrate them. And they're still yeah. used for them. But there's complexity of these systems that we can't expect what worked in the last hundred years, as we look to solve some of the things we've talked about today in a new way, incremental is not going to do it. And whether it's private industry, it's, um, you know, humanitarian aid, educate, whatever it is, how do we do it? You know, one of the things I can't help but let my brain just runs as you're talking. It's, it's almost like star clusters have gone off. We we're talking about telemedicine. I'm, um, my wife and I in the last few years have begun embracing, we haven't discarded traditional medicine. We're full on traditional medicine. So if my parents are listening to this, still believe in antibiotics, still believe in that. <laughs> We're completely on board. However, in some cases, those treatments, not antibiotics, but in just traditional, regular, over-the-counter meds or whatever didn't work. And so we would go to, um, we've taken up acupuncture. We've taken up, one of the things about when you go to a really good acu acupuncturist, they also teach you about centuries old, uh, millennia old herbal teas that they take and just, just different ways of meditation and thinking, even within your various faith traditions or whatever. Like, here's how you you know, the body is going to manifest certain things. And so we've, we've been learning and educating ourselves. I'm, I tend to be skeptical, but I move cautiously through these things. But we were talking about telemedicine. I'm imagining if you can get that camp connected for education, you can get it connected for telemedicine. You can get it connected for, uh, you know, in a, that connection um, can serve a number of purposes. And one of the things I know they're doing in South America where there aren't camps, but there is remote access. There are so many w places where um, naturopathy and even traditional medicine is reaching into some of these remote villages saying, if you'll stop bleeding people and leeching them and try this simple local herb brewed like this, doing like that, not smoked, 
America, but brewed like this and consumed like this or clean like this or wrapped like this, more infant mortality rates come out. Like there's, there's just so many things that you can do when you begin thinking about, hey, it's not just how do we ship Doctors Without Borders, which is an amazing, unbelievable organization, but how else can we use technology to help human beings flourish where it may be more difficult than just more plane flights or government allowance of a few people that have to volunteer in. Anyway, I'm just, I'm rambling about that, but I, I'm just, I've got a little bit of systems innovation rambling in my head. I, despite myself, I think. I think, um, so A, I love Doctors Without Borders. <laughs> love them. The work they do is some of the most difficult in the, in the most difficult places. So um, just an incredible organization. Um, one of the things that I find um, really interesting, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will have, uh, will have played with these ideas is, you know, in this fourth industrial revolution and, and the maturing technologies, you have this, the incredible ability to combine technologies. So suddenly you have IoT to be able to see what's going on. You have connectivity and big data and cloud to kind of combine information. You have AI, possibly not there yet, depending on what you're doing, but, but certainly getting there to decide action. And then you have robotics, uh, digital manufacture, autonomous vehicles to then act. And, um, and one of the things I love is you could use one of those. You could say, we're just going to focus on IoT because these are expensive and, and difficult technologies. And we're going we're gonna to take an incremental path for that. Mm-hmm. Or you could say, how do I look at that shift that is coming to say, without humans, there's something that sees, pulls data together, decides on the best action, and then acts, makes it, does whatever um, to move us forward. What does that mean for, for our industry? And um, there was an incredible project uh, in Syria again, where uh, an organization said, okay, many people are hurt and need health care. And so we're going to get some sensors and scanners um, where somebody can kind of go around very remote, difficult to access communities and, you know, scan people's legs and arms and, and, and look at what kind of prosthetics um, are needed. And we're going to send that back uh, to, you know, could be US, could be wherever, um, to design for this person, for this questionnaire we've asked, the best kind of uh, prosthetic or, or healthcare support. And then we're going to have 3D printers and, um, and digital manufacturer. And we're going to get these very specified, cheaper than what you can find elsewhere, um, prosthetics and, and healthcare support out to these people who, you know, who, who will make an incredible dif- uh, difference to their, to their life now and in the future. And it's an it's example of combining, you know, IoT, the cloud, um, uh, digital manufacturing to say we can just leapfrog a bunch of stuff that a bunch of other agencies are doing, um, and it's less about leapfrogging other agencies in the aid sector, and it's more providing incredible care that didn't exist before. And this is this project is is fairly new and it's scaling now, but you know, how does that affect people in the US? How does that affect, how does some of these things that are in emergencies 
you have to move fast. You have to be agile. There is no, <laughs> there is no, if you just said, this is what I have to do and this is how I do it, and then then it just, it wouldn't be relevant. So, um, so I guess one of the things I've gained in moving into the private sector is I just, this idea of having these long-term hundred year bureaucratic structures, I'm like, great, cool. So how are you going to make change in the world? You know, how are you going to grow? How are you going to stay relevant? How are you going to, how are you going to create amazing things for your customers? Um, and, and, you know, there, there's always a North star. There's always something for people to grab onto, but then what's under there can shift incredibly when you start looking at combining these, um, these, these technologies. And I think that's a really exciting, interesting way of starting to see, you know, the systems of, when you look at a broader system of healthcare in Syria and you start to layer on some of those global changes, then you can build something like, and here's might be where the cloud fits in and here's where robotics might fit in and here's where something else might fit in. And here's how we'll make it cheaper and better and faster. <laughs> I, I love that. A friend of mine who just retired from Accenture's um, funded a company or has helped fund a company in wearables for um, um, wearables for adult for um, like elderly people and mm -hmm. other technology where they they can't afford a full time nurse they don't want that they want to live in a community where they have some independence and autonomy but if they haven't moved or if something hasn't happened in their home like you know the right people can be alerted or the right circumstances can. And so he was talking about how they're con combining LIDAR and AI and machine learning because they want, as the data is gathered and it's validated, they don't want to wait for people to train the systems. They want the systems to train the systems. But mm. I just the, the levels of depth that, they were, that he was talking about, I just, he said, and you know what else? We could take that same thing, not with wearables, but we can also move it on how do we get plastic out of the ocean? Wait, what? Mm. How, how do we mm. do that? So, so of these things, I can't, you know, I may not be able to, in, a, in an immediate way, be able to impact the environment. I can, I can certainly um, trumpet the need for change in behavior, but I can go work on these systems to get plastic out of the ocean. I can help these community of people around us. Um, and then lastly, um, we'll be publishing it here in the next few weeks. We had Professor Donald Sadaway from MIT on the other day. Um, we recorded that session and he's a big, he's, his thing is you cannot have sustainable energy if you don't have energy storage. So when the mm. wind, sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing, especially in our industry, which is hundreds and hundreds, grid level storage, he said, but we can't scale as much as amazing work as Tesla's doing in small scale batteries. You can't take that up to something like our facilities this, for all these reasons why economic impact, environmental impact, risk of safety, et cetera. So how do we make it? He said, I went to my lab and said, it's got to be locally sourced. It's got to be cheap as dirt, super, super, super cheap. And um, it's got to be easy to operate and safe. Those three things. Figure it and don't look at any current methodologies. That's my big thing. And I needed to be able to scale into the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of megawatts. Good luck. Well, his students came back when they were unfettered from these boundaries. Just let your imagination roll. They created this really cool um, idea 
I, interestingly enough, um, he had somebody uh, watching. He was one of these uh, people who offered free online chemistry. He taught chemistry one-on-one, online for free. And one day he got an email. Are you familiar with Professor Sadaway? Have you seen his TED Talk or anything like that? Yeah. Well, anyway, he said, um, I got an email one day from this person's executive assistant who has an executive assistant. He said, I just thought it was one of my grad students playing a joke on me. And so after ignoring the email two or three times, he took it to a couple of his students and said, who do you think is playing this joke? And he said, I don't think that's a joke. I really do think that <laughs> Bill Gates is executive assistant. And when he says he wants to come and talk to you. So Bill Gates flew out, uh, as I understand the story, met with him there in uh, Cambridge in Boston and um, said, hey, what else are you working on? And he said, you know, I'm kicking around this idea because, the, you know, we want sustainable energy. We want these other things. I, but I, I really believe that where I can bring value is my chemistry and material science background. We think that we're inventing energy storage that looks like this. It's cheap. It's easy. You don't need special dirt because I don't want to ship dirt around the world, like just locally sourced. And it provides this value. And Gates said, I'll be your first investor when you get that off the ground. They got off the ground, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, big angel investor. But as you've talked about this systems innovation, it reminds me of this. Look, I know the problem that I'm trying to solve. I know what, how I want to help human beings, but I don't want to try to I don't want to try to fit it. We need to figure out how to do lithium ion better. We know we need to figure out how to do this better. We invented a new technology by messing around with different chemistries that work that fit within these kind of broad parameters. And this is what we came up with. And I love to see human imagination when we're describing 3D printing, where we see 3D printing of food that they're doing in Israel. We see 3D printing of organs that we're doing here in Atlanta at Georgia Tech and other places. What happens with my friends 3D print game parts for their board games and whatever? I'm not going to, you know, go buy some. I'm just going to make it off of their computer and they trade designs. How cool is that when you're 3D printing repair parts for your home? Will industries be disrupted? Sure. But what if you're that cooling or heating company that makes your, that thinks about this ahead of time? How do I make it easy for people to 3D print components of our infrastructure or tech or whatever? That seems to me to be looking at, look, how do we not just do it, you know, better, cheaper, faster metal, but how do we make it better? I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of riffing, but you've really, you and Dan have really captured my imagination in this area. I'm going to go start with my organization, start systems innovating. Well, <laughs> Can uh, I tell you, CEO, be like, we got to do bigger. This is like, there is a market, there is space out there, and let me show you what it is. Oh, my CEO's <laughs> not the problem. He's, uh, he's a pretty big, uh, he's a pretty big dreamer. The, the dangerous yeah, thing I love is it. my CTO, who we, we really did um, create an innovation lab, and um, he's a pretty out of the, he's British, so he's a pretty out of the box uh, thinker already, so... Well, Jenny, I, I can't even believe our time has flown by. It has been a spectacular visit for me. What haven't we covered that we should have covered? Because I feel like we've we've talked about a lot. Wow, we've been all over the place. Um, I think the ability for every organization to make incredible change, government, company, tech, process, whatever it is, with systems innovation is sitting on the table at the moment. And it's basically up to them to grab it if they want it. 
Yeah, I think the way Dan expressed it, very you, you did it much nicer and uh, more elegantly. He's basically, look, change or die. And it's like, <laughs> you know, in some ways that's, that's not, um, you know, that's not untrue. Um, you know, you've got to, we've, we need to reimagine as, as whatever the group is that we're, that innovates, um, it's, it's a world of complexities. You gave a great example of IoT and all these other things coming together. You're going to have to continuously uh, reimagine. If people want to learn more about you and how you help them or areas they can, um, they can begin to educate themselves in this area, where should they? We'll, of course, keep, you know, put links to uh, the innovation ecosystem. Is that the best way to reach you? Or what's the best way for people to learn more about what you're about? Yeah, pop onto our website, innovationecosystem.com. Find us on Twitter, inno underscore ecosystem, I-N-N-O. Um, yeah, let us know if you have a problem. Dan and I basically just love solving complex problems. So if you've got a real good one, let us know. We're happy. Well, you opened up a bag of worms. I'm going to be emailing you some stuff going on <laughs> in the world. So you let me know how that works out. Jenny Wild, thank Done. you for coming on today to the... Uh, QTS experience. I really appreciate it. You as well. If you've enjoyed the conversation, like, share, subscribe, and comment. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Have a good one.